This is the Master of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim, and unfortunately, Tom wasn't able to join us today due to some car issue and an operation, I heard. But uh, I have with me Adam Connett. Thank you so much for joining me, Adam. No problem. Thank you for having me. Um, you work, or the way I've come to know you is you review films for the art shelf, uh, particularly yep. Master of Cinema films as well. But uh, could you like introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, um, I'm Adam Garnett, I'm the editor or founder of The Art Shelf. Um, the Art Shelf was set up about just over four years ago. I was recovering from quite a serious illness, and as part of my recovery, I was just watching a lot of films, uh, and it was kind of set up as a you know, means for something to do, and it kind of became bigger than I anticipated or expected it to be. Mm. Um, but it was, you know, a huge part of my recovery and uh you know it's kind of opened up a whole number of doors and you know it's it's been a become a huge part of my life so mm -hmm. that that's a you know a primary focus of, of what I do. Was film like a big part of your life before you started the art shelf it, or? It, it was yeah I left school uh when I was 16 and I went and trained in film production for two years I did uh a bit of traditional uh, photography as well, sort of dark room and stuff, um, and did a few different you know student productions, films, that kind of thing. Then finished out after two years, and then I went and studied um, musical theatre at drama school, hmm. uh, and then did a bit of acting for a while. I've done stage acting since I was fifteen, and then yeah, set up the art shelf, and kind of the rest is history. Hmm. Um, did you gravitate towards? stuff like the films in Master Cinema, or was that something that developed as part of um, like a film education? Yeah, yeah it, it was definitely something that developed more. When, at, at college, it was I was kind of disappointed in a way because film production, it was more, you know, we didn't actually watch many films, which I, I was quite disappointed about. We talked about a few things and were shown clips of key films throughout the years, but I think we've shown uh, Sunrise at some point, but only like ten minute clip of it. Because mm. um, that kind, of, but I'd, I'd already kind of studied and you know, familiarised myself. But it wasn't until I kind of set this up and I kind of just got hold of um, Sight and Sound and Little White Lies and different film magazines. I'd just pour through lists of sort of the greatest films and just kind of, you know, expand my my film knowledge and what I watched. Mm. Yeah. And then that's kind of when I came across uh, Eureka and Master of Cinema label. And they were, again, uh, incredibly helpful and, and kind of crucial to get me out of a, a very dark time in my recovery. And they were the first label that I really got in touch with when I was setting it up. Uh, the first label that kind of put me on, agreed to put me on the mailing list. And they were just, yeah, uh, I can't say enough about them, really. They were, they were incredible in mm -hmm. helping me get set up. That's great. Do you remember, like, when you were first, uh, when you first encountered a drier film, uh, or Vampire in particular? I'd seen, uh, I'd seen Passion of Joan of Arc a number of years earlier, but only in a, a kind of a, a very cheap uh, fake copy, if you like. Kind of yeah. just came across one, and it was a poor quality. Subtitles were kind of, you know, a ru very rough translation. It was a very rough copy but yeah and but the film itself you know was incredible and uh, mm. it wasn't till a few years later until you know I kind of discovered Masters of Cinema that I came across 
Michael and Vampyr, and then later through BFI, I looked at Odette and Dave Rath, and there was the Gertrude. Yeah. Um, I myself, I, I've only seen uh, Vampire and uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. I have Michael uh, sitting yep. in front of me, but I've yet to watch it. But um, yeah. he is, it's funny because Passion of Joan of Arc is one of my favourite movies, but I, there's something yep. about his other movies that um, uh, I've yet to like discover them, I think. Um, yeah. But he, he only made I... seven films or something, right? Yeah, well, seven feature films. But yeah. he, he, Dreyer is quite difficult. He's not the easiest, uh, most accessible director. And I no. think p- partly why Vampire works is because it's so different to his other work. Michael, you know, it's kind of, it's it's good, but it has its flaws. It's kind of him finding his feet. It's his first feature film. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, he moves on to Joan of Arc, which is this incredible thing. But there was a, you know, I read this article or interview about him and he said uh, part of the reason he wanted to do Vampire was because he was kind of riding high on the success of Joan of Arc and he, he didn't want to be pigeonholed as uh, a Saints director mm. and he kind of he wanted to do something completely different and move away from you know the the completely good St. Joan to the you know darker Vampire mm. and then kind of it, the later works are kind of a fusion of both it's the you know the spiritual and religious films uh and um this came or vampire it came in a time where horror films were really taken off but yeah with nosferatu in 21 and then you had dracula in 31 and frankenstein also and dr jekyll and mr hyde all these universal films absolutely no yeah i was just going to say that this is like really something quite different from those and even though it was released later on it really was in production before those other films were released. Yeah. What you were going to say? I was just saying that the whole, that, that era is, a, you know, it's a very interesting because you've got these huge film, you know, the, the Hollywood, the universal horrors coming out. Mm-hmm. You've got your Dracula, you've got your Frankenstein. But in across Europe, you've still got silent films being made. I know Jazz Singer was 1927. That's the invention of kind of the talking cinema. But mm-hmm. you've still got, you know, your... Your silent films being made. There's a uh, you've got Modern Times is, ju- is going to come out soon. City Lights had just come out. Chaplin, uh, Murnau, City Girl, and Taboo had just been made around the same time. So there was still that a sort of you know silent films were still being made, but there were pressures on European distributors from Hollywood because people wanted the you know the the big boys, the talkies, and uh, I think that's partly why uh, Vampire has this kind of is it a silent film? Is it a talky aspect about it? Because I think had there not been the pressures from Hollywood, he would have made it a completely silent horror. But because yeah. I think it, I think when he planned it, it, it was meant to be um, it was meant to be a silent film. I but think so. Definitely, yeah. You can definitely see how how much he relies on like intertitles and there's he very does, little I mean, dialogue. And... The dialogue is is yeah sparse and and. and far between and it, it relies on it it's it's visuals i mean you mm-hmm. almost don't need the the intertitle or the, the dialogue at all you could just watch it on mute and you still know what's going on it's just for the sake of sort of having it it almost feels because yeah. you know a silent film was becoming obsolete and they were having dialogue in there mm. you know for the sake of it yeah 
and he also recorded this in like three languages uh, and we're did, watching yeah. the I think we're watching the German release the here German, yeah and the yeah. English release was never finished I think no that's yeah again it's interesting because he had the the actors kind of mouthing it in three different languages and then it was overdubbed but mm. I think the the English title the version has been completely lost the French I think is in kind of it was highly censored maybe and it's kind of in bits and pieces but the German is the version we see and that's kind of the most complete version yeah. that that kind of exists today mm. we mentioned about the intertitles um yep. and the dialogue being sparse i mean the intertitles themselves they don't really they don't really give you any new information either uh, no no it's kind of just establishes the scene but it doesn't it doesn't you know it doesn't sort of carry the plot really that's kind of done just through basically through the through the visuals so yeah mm. and the first like 20 or 30 minutes are so incredibly moving like visually in the literal sense in that the camera yeah. moves a lot and it really feels like he's playing and kind of experimenting with the medium and almost like he's trying to capture like the nightmarish qualities or the dreamlike feel Absolutely. and not only like um, on the narrative level but also uh, on a visual level Absolutely yeah that interesting uh, concept that him and the um, photographer Rudolf Mate mm. decided because they wanted this dreamlike hypnotic effect because originally he was going to make it quite you know a, a sort of hard straight visual like the the high contrast you know the the sharpness of, of Joan of Arc mm. but they did a, a couple of test shots and one of it came out quite sort of fuzzy and blurry and then Dreyer decided that's the the look he wanted and they put a, a thin piece of you know gauze like tool uh, over over the lens and that's kind of what created that kind of you know mystical dreamlike effect on the on the lens which you know works incredibly well yeah it's very reminiscent of when you watch like old portraits of people from the 1800s yeah um where you have this like washed out photograph uh, photographic quality yeah. um and it's much more akin to like experimental features it uh, is yeah in the contemporary time um, and surrealist films more than any horror films that came out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've had Bunuel and uh, Dali's large Lador Golden Age just come out and, uh, you know, you've had and Chien Andalou and things like that and um, Jean Cocteau as was making films around that time. And I think Dreyer feels sort of, you know, quite liberated and invigorated by what they were doing and it kind of gives him this this freedom that you don't have to conform to the, the straight narrative you can play about with with the film and you can do things that were only done in experimental features but mm. in kind of a you know a, a sort of a wider kind of mainstream release i feel like he's he's much more concerned with creating an atmosphere than delivering any type of coherent yeah, story definitely and yeah. In in that sense, he like he truly succeeds in creating that atmosphere. Um, but I, I, I'm sort of left with the feeling that he's trying to cram like too much into it. We have too many ideas that, for me, it doesn't really come together in a cohesive and fulfilling whole. No, I think that's that's kind of true of the film. But I'm not sure whether that's his was his vision all along, or mm -hmm. whether it's kind of just happened. But it is you know very very different from horror films at the time from vampire films at the time you know there's there's no sort of blood there's no you know shown depicted violence it's all implied or off screen you've got lots of noises off and it 
it moves away from the freshness style that many contemporary horrors used, you know, especially mm. come out of Germany, you've got them now with that kind of clear expressionist style. And it is this kind of new breed of abstract experimental horror and all everything's very ambiguous. You're never quite sure, you know, what's what, who's what, if people are, are real, if it's a dream, if it's, you know, reality, it's a you know, it's a strange piece of, of film and it's you know, it's open to various different interpretations, which I think is partly what makes it so, you know, unique and such a special film. There's kind of a disjunctive feeling to it. We have a fleeting, um, a fleeting line or a border between what's real and what's Absolutely. kind of a dream, yeah. and what can we sort of glean from these um, different realities that we are watching. And you can also see the influence on filmmakers like Lynch. Absolutely, you could hardly yeah. have anything like Eraserhead without these sort of films. No, yeah, exactly. They they pay a huge uh, tribute to to the works of Dreyer and, and people like that who were. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think that I, I when I was watching the film, I didn't actually understand that Marguerite Chopin, the the vampire, that she was the same person that we were seeing sucking blood because I totally thought that was a dude. Um, <laughs> she has an incredibly like androgynous look. Absolutely, yeah. And it really added to my confusion. I I wasn't. I couldn't really connect the dots, really. Um, but it, it is... I mean, at some points, I feel like some portions are really underlined, uh, unnecessarily so, where the characters are saying something or doing something, and then the text is explaining what just happened. Yeah. Uh, but then there are other segments where you have no idea where he is or why. Like, when he's... Uh, when he stumbles over that chateau, um, yeah. it, it sort of just happens, and you have to. It's it, for me it comes across as a bit unbalanced. I don't know if that are, if those are sort of missing portions that maybe would have filled out some maybe, of these yeah. spots. Interesting to see what what has been lost, mm -hmm. what was cut, or what you know, what if if those portions would have been filled in sort of mm -hmm. with the missing elements. Yeah, um, but those. Like, that's the story part of it, that he's, he's really not that interested. I mean, the opening titles or caption, he tells us that uh, Alan Gray, he's not, on, he's not on the hunt for something. He's not looking for anything, but he's no, it's just a, an aimless, lost in the know, border. <laughs> lost in the border between yeah. reality and the supernatural. Uh, and it's really evident that Dry just wants us to like let go of our narrative needs and just follow the film. I mean, I guess it's quite sort of, um, oh, what's the word I'm, I'm thinking of? You know, it just kind of happens, you know, that he stumbles, he's got this fascination with, uh, it's very coincidental sort of, you know, he's this fascination with the, you know, the occult, the vampire, devil worship, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. he just happens to stumble upon this situation where that exact thing is happening. You know, it's kind of... But it's a very strange character, as you were saying, and a very strange situation that we it are is put very, in. Yeah, it is. And he, he comes along with his, like, butterfly catching net or something. I don't yeah. know what he's going to do with that, but... <laughs> I mean, he, he really just found this sort of city, or he's on the look. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what he's been doing out in the woods. He's just gone for a wander, whether he's been, you know, catching butterflies, whatever he's doing, I don't know. He just And then he, he stumbles across the, this, you know, strange inn, and there's um, that, immediately there's that iconic image of the you know the the ferryman ringing the yeah, bell yeah. with the, the scythe exactly i mean i would have 
turned and walked the other way. <laughs> I've seen someone <laughs> like that in the city, so... <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Because the, the film is... It's obviously, like, it, it has its influence in these sort of supernatural occult stories, but I'm I'm really not familiar at all with Lovecraft and these, uh, and Le Fanu, which this is based on. But I, do you have any... Do you have any uh, first-hand knowledge or about these sort of stories? Uh, yes, I know. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with them. I've, I've read you know, little bits of of Poe of Lovecraft of of Le Fanu, but I'm not you know hugely uh, knowledgeable about you know individual works and about about their work. You no, know, that's more sort of specialist area. But mm-hmm. I have read In a Glass Darkly, which is the inspiration for this, and. I will say because it's considered, you know, a free adaptation, and that's absolutely true. Because it's, you know, if you actually read, because *In a Glass Darkly* is a compilation of five short stories, and the two main novellas that it borrows from are *Carmilla*, which is essentially a kind of lesbian vampire tale, mm-hmm. and *The Room and the Dragon Volant*, which is the where the sort of light burial comes into it. But if you actually read the novels, there's very little, you know, of the actual content of the erotic sexual content come out in the film it's very you know if, if at all it's only very briefly uh, referenced so yeah it's a, it's a very free adaptation of that but obviously visually and and if you if you separate the various layers there are huge influences from that kind of you know the Lovecraftian Poe, Fanu mm-hmm. aspects of their work yeah Thing when I was uh, reading up on this film and reading other people's reviews, I saw that many people they um, they mentioned these sort of erotic aspects of this and lesbian aspects. But I I was kind of surprised that everyone was mentioning it because I I also didn't really feel that it kind of coloured the film in any grand way. No, I mean when when I first saw it, I didn't sort of think of it in that way at all. I think it kind of effectively shies away from that and it, mm. fo- it focuses on you know it tackles kind of the themes and the elements in a in a different way which i think works i, I don't think it incorporated the the erotic themes i don't think it would have been you know well, clearly it wouldn't have been the same film but you know i don't think it would have worked as well i think it it succeeds because it it, it moves away from that mm-hmm. it it feels like um Many of those ideas are present in something like Dracula in Absolutely, yeah. more of these Americanized versions yeah. of the vampire stories. Yeah, and I think I can, there are definitely aspects in, in Osferatu, but mm-hmm. again, maybe because it was, you know, heavily censored around that time and you know, it's it's more prevalent in the pre code Hollywood films than it it is in the in the European horrors. Mm. Um the film uh was actually funded by Nicola de Gunsberg, who plays the main character, Alan Gray. Uh, yeah. And he plays it under the name of Julian West. Yes. Um, but de Gunsberg, he has, um, he served a, um, um, a documentary by, made by Craig Keller uh, yeah. on the Master Cinema. He's quite a character from what I could glean. Uh, I wasn't able to watch any of the, the extras apart from the commentaries. Yeah, but I remember being fascinated with this character. He's, yeah. uh, he's, he a, he's like... a strange figure. He's this yeah. aristocratic, you know, son of a wealthy, I think, Russian Jewish banking family, banking and oil, I think. Um, and you know, Dreyer sort of was introduced to him through Valentin Hugo, 
who was the married the great grandson of Victor Hugo, Jean Hugo, hmm. and I think that was while Dreyer was location scouting. But he's introduced to to Nicholas de Gunsberg, and he agrees to finance the film, you know, in exchange for the lead role. So it's kind of a you know a catch twenty two. He has to because Dreyer was obviously desperate for funding. Um, this uh, didn't go down well with the, the Gunsberg family because you know. They weren't keen for him to enter the, the acting world. He was, uh, at the time, sort of a, quite a, a prominent editor of uh, fashion magazines. I think he did Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. Um, and then, all of a sudden, he, he moves into to film, finances mm. this, which didn't do very well at all financially. And it you know lost a, an, an awful lot of money for him and the Gunsberg family. Mm. But yeah, he's a, he's a strange character and... But I think Dreyer uses him well. He's he's obviously a, a non-professional actor. It's the first thing he's ever done, and he's quite a an expressionless sort of. If you look at his his face, very sort of faded look. But he uses him very well. I, I was uh, reminded of um, um, oh, what's the character uh, or the the actor that plays um, the fly. Um, uh, Jeff Goldblum. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was reminded of him when I was watching uh, uh, the Gunsberg. Yeah, action. it's a you know again an, an abstract performance. Yeah, and yeah, and it it, it works in, in the film's favour. It adds to that hypnotic, dreamlike quality again, blurring the lines of of you know reality and 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 fiction. Mm-hmm. The um, another thing that we've been talking about are the the um, the intertitles uh i wanted to return to that I, w- I wonder what what do you feel about the presence of intertitles in the film it doesn't bother me too much i think okay. go, going back to the what we we're talking about before i think that's it was part of his silent film vision and i think he, he's probably retaining that because it's uh maybe most of the work had been done maybe it's you know to to kind of keep that silent film tone about it mm. and uh yeah like again like we were saying the, the dialogue it seems like it's only been used for the sake of it and you get a lot more from the titles than you do the dialogue again maybe not a lot from it it's kind of just establish the scene and then use the visuals to work out really what's going on mm. but yeah it just it doesn't bother me too much okay a lot of uh, people a lot of people might see it sort of a you know a cheat's way out um, yeah it kind of gets faded out sort of shortly after that but mm. I mean um, my main issue with the film uh, I think in general is the fact that wh- whenever I watch Vampire it feels like I'm reading it um, because the passages are so so long I mean you have a page or a page and a half yeah. uh, that we you have to read Scroll- scrolling titles almost yeah. exactly and it just I feel like it really pulls the film to a halt and it kind of disrupts the flow of the film for me. Yeah. So whenever I'm watching it, I feel like it's um, a start and stop kind of experience for me. I think I've always kind of considered it mm-hmm. a silent film. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of, that it's, it's made in that style and it, it has that, just that feel about it. And I kind of, I think if you kind of look at it that way, it doesn't bother you too much. If I looked at it as a, a sound film and didn't know any of the the background that it, it it might have been a sound film a silent film and didn't know about the pressures to sort of add the dialogue in mm-hmm. I, I might think differently I might think well that's you know it, it's a, a bit of a cop out you don't need that you should tell the story 
through the dialogue or through without needing the intertitles. But no, it's a, it doesn't bother me too much. How do you how do you feel about the the ending uh, when we we see the uh, the doctor? He's covered in flour, and then yeah. we see um, we see Alan Gray and the the older sister. I think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. They kind of go away on a boat, in the boat through the through the fog. But they they kind of end up on the shore where the man with the scythe ends yes. up. So I'm not sure whether it's a happy ending. I or... don't know. It's kind of that that strange that memento mori feel that Guillermo del Toro talks about on the on the commentary. That sort of you know sense of of death is is always around. That scythe to mm-hmm. me just symbolizes is death. You know, it does. It's not like that. Look at the ferryman. If if you took before I'd seen the film, I looked at that image and thought, you know, to me it reminds me of like uh, Seven Seal Bergman, like the kind of figure of death. Mm-hmm. I don't think, oh, that's a a ferryman. Like really, I, I kind of think of him as a you know this figure of death. And he, as Alan, you know, enters the village, he's this kind of omen for what's about to happen. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a strange, ambiguous again, enigmatic ending where you're never too sure. If it's a happy ending, or if that's just the start of you know something else, yeah. Yeah, there's like this um, Caligari-like reference to the state of the world. Definitely, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that's maybe taking it a bit far, but you could argue that it's like a comment on the the political state of the of Germany and definitely. Europe I think it's time. all it's all open to you know interpretation, and you know, mm. we, we, we'll never know the right answer. So it's kind of yeah. Mm. It's just how you look at it. Nicolas de Gansberg, he was one of many non-professionals in the film, but yes. I, I'm I'm actually quite um, um, quite surprised that there were so many non-professionals because I wasn't, I don't think I noticed any poor performances necessarily in the film. I think Dreyer really pulls out the best of them. Yeah, it's just I think Dreyer preferred non-actors because. The professionals were too well trained, and they kind of have a had a like set view of the character, and they they weren't often to, able to let down barriers and just give that sense of reality that mm. non professionals get if you just thrown into the role. Mm. And there there are a couple of professionals in there. There's uh, Maurice Schutz, who's um, was in Joan of Arc, and he's in Evelgans's Napoleon as the the Lord of the Manor, and then Sibyl Schmitz is the other notable professional actress she was later used as the basis for veronica voss in fassbinder's film the same name Mm. um and i think she has the more complex you know role i think that's probably why he chose her because he knew maybe that a non-professional actor might not be able to to pull it off as well Mm. um yeah but but the the non-professionals definitely work and he's obviously chosen them who he wanted carefully because it gives again that that feeling of ambiguity and you're never quite sure what's what about it mm-hmm. i also read that um the person playing um playing the doctor he was approached on the metro actually, yes yeah i read that which yeah. is it's an interesting thing like most of these were spotted uh in real yeah. life in shops was, and cafes. And, yeah. He was approached and he wasn't sure and then I think he went away and then rang or wrote wrote to, not rang, wrote to uh, Dry's assistant mm. a few days later and sort of said yes, but he wasn't too sure to start with, yeah. Mm. It, yeah, it's strange if you if you kind of hone in on each one and, and think of, you know, 
how they're approached. You you'd never do it now, or you know might do the odd bit of extra casting, but it's yeah, it's not the done thing anymore. No. Um, you mentioned how it debuted, and uh, it really did horribly. I mean, they in Germany, Ufa wanted to delay it until Frankenstein and Dracula yeah. both have been released, and obviously, this is not this is not the same kind of film. <laughs> and no. People um, started booing, I think, on the release. Yeah, it booed in Berlin. The Vienna screening had police riots. People wanted their money back. And, you know, <laughs> there was truncheon battles and things like that. But I think that all... Dreyer was already, obviously, very frustrated because there was the issue with Ufa. They wanted to delay it for the Universal Horrors. And then he kind of felt that his market had gone. Hmm. So, yeah, I think it's a, obviously a, a very difficult time. As as the years have gone on, it's thankfully now considered you know one of the the great inspirational works of the you know the early thirties era. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, I have the film in the background now, and it's really quite palpable that he really shot the film on location in Courtenpierre in France. Yes, um, we get there's a different sense of reality than what you get when you see films made in the studios. You yeah. really get a feel that he's inhabiting our world, but it's a different... It's shot through sort of a prism. Yeah, it's definitely got that that sense of realism that the you know the expressionist studio films don't have. Mm. Um, but like you said, they're all scouted around Cotempierre where the action takes place. You have the, the chateaus are set in for large parts of the film. And then that's where they, they lodged the 35 casting crew, and it was this mouldy, run-down, rat-infested place. <laughs> Very un- unpleasant for, for the casting crew, but, you know, it works great as a, a key location. Mm. Then there's the windmill and the ice house, and, you know, all serving as several sets for each. I think the, the ice house was something like five or six different sets within within that place, and, yeah. Mm. And it definitely adds that sense of realism that you don't get in, in the studio films you um you obviously have a photograph uh, background do you notice um do you notice any like references or any influences that he has had again definitely from the you know the experimental films of the time mm-hmm. that there's definitely a sense of that where it's difficult to know whether he had seen them or had seen images or seen the actual film because you know it's this is filmed 3031 when a lot of the the dali brunwell films are being sort of released the same year as it's being made, so you know I'm not quite sure if he'd actually directly referenced it or not, or whether it's just coincidence. But yeah, and it's interesting again when you look at how different it is from other, you know, horror films or sort of thriller films of of the time. It's a much different look and tone to it. There's none of the unusual. It's a primarily kind of white and light film. Mm-hmm. And the horror norm we think of, you know, dark shadows, especially like Nosferatu and Caligari. It's these huge expressionistic sets and lots of shadows and lots of silhouettes. But it, it largely unfolds in daylight or bright moonlight. And there's very little in terms of darkness and shadow. Mm. And it's sort of testament to drier skill and artistry that you can create this atmosphere using kind of light and white shades. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a kind of... This white background is a recurring theme in in most of his works. Definitely seen in the kind of the religious trilogy later on in Gertrude and Audet. 
Um, Del Toro, he, he mentions that um, that whiteness and how it symbolizes death, sort of, uh, through his commentary. Yeah. Um, did you did you watch the commentary for this uh, this recording or? I'd, I'd listened to it the first time I watched it. Meant well, a number of years ago when I first picked up the DVD, mm. I watched the film on its own first. Uh, I made that mistake once before. I think I, I, I can't remember what film, what it was, which film it was. And I watched the. I thought, well, I watched the commentary first, and I kind <laughs> of kind of spoiled just to see, but it you kind of spoiled it. So I, I kind of learnt the hard way. I don't. I watch it first now, and then I watch the listen to the commentary. But I had listened to the Del Toro one before. I hadn't listened to Tony Rain's one before. I listened to that a couple of times. Mm. In preparation for this, which is again, I mean, Del Toro, like says on it, on his, it's a much more informal chat. He says it's the equivalent of a, in fact, a fat Mexican round to your house for tea and listen to him <laughs> talk. Whereas Tony Raines is a much more, a, a much more professional sounding, mm. intellectual, you know, commentary. Yeah, much more of an like a, a thorough analysis. Absolutely, yeah. Trying to really shed light on things that people might be not getting really. yeah um i mean he he touches on visual style editing storytelling technique uh, yeah. and explaining some of the more like hard to understand areas the gray areas yeah. whereas as you said del toro he really just speaks from uh, being a fan of the film he's just, yeah, absolutely that's what it, it and it comes across he's just a fan he's just watching it and he's just talking about one of his favorite films and mm-hmm. That's how it comes across. It really is like it's quite a get to have for Master Cinema for to have Del Toro uh, with with kind of his filmography. Uh, you can you can definitely tell that this is the sort of films that he aspires to make. Yes, definitely, and he's uh, hugely influenced by Poe and and by Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Just uh, have you seen Crimson Peak? I have seen it. It was one of my favorite films of last year. I loved yeah. it. Yeah. And that, that has the same kind of feel to it, uh, although obviously it is more narratively driven, but you can definitely see that they live in the same universe. So it's speak. certainly got that, that visual style that, that's you know, established in, in these kinds of films, like Van Gogh mm. and Lightyear kind of expressionist films, yeah. Yeah. Um, this was obviously, like, it was shot on location without any sound and everything was... Uh, created in a post-production but yeah. the dvd um the the picture quality it really i mean by today's standard the quality isn't all that great with loads of scratches and you have spots and splices and no the nuances but, of the gray tones they sort yeah. of get kind of lost but when you compare it i don't know if you've seen any sort of clips or images of, of previous yeah. edi- editions it's you know it's incredible compared to what, what we've had before. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's uh, never going to be perfect because the elements are, you know, are, are old. The, the, the actual, you know, film materials weren't the highest quality mm. at the time. But I think this was, uh, I think this was restored in 99, which is, it, that's quite early in the age of like digital restoration. Yeah. So maybe if, they were to do um, a new digital scan of it. Uh, they could clean it up a bit more, but uh, I think definitely, yeah. I think uh, there's some progress to be made, but obviously, taking the the age into consideration, it's perhaps uh, as close to as good as it gets. Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's over eighty years old now, and considering 
its age, it you know it, it is in very good condition. But mm-hmm. yeah, part of the reason I think we're still awaiting a Blu-ray release, which is anticipated. Mm-hmm. But part of that reason we're, we're still waiting is because you know the materials aren't in the best condition. Yes, it needs restoration to a you know a four K restoration or two K before we actually get a, a you know the the definitive edition. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, I, th- I think there is a market out there for a new restoration of this, but um, hopefully, hopefully, we'll see it soon. So hopefully, cost um, money though. <laughs> it costs money, yeah. Um, did you watch any of the other extras on the on the disc? The Tupiak uh, uh, visual essay, for instance. I've not. No, I didn't. Well, I've not seen that one. No. no okay. Um, I remember. I think I watched it. Uh, when I first bought the DVD a couple of years ago, and it's it is quite interesting where he kind of traces the surrealist style of the film and where he got some of his influences by, um, and also he's discussing um, this through like stills and film clips. But uh, it's quite good actually. Um, but um, and also we you have the Keller uh, documentary about yes the uh, Gunsberg absolutely yeah. And also have uh, I think there's an archive, some archive footage of um, of Dreyer as well. Yeah, and you've got the deleted scenes because they've got the edited version because they weren't allowed to show the vampire. Ah, okay. Being killed, so they have to change it for different releases. Yeah. Mm. Um, but all in all, it's it's quite quite a decent package. Um, I know that the Criterion version it has the entire book uh, included in the booklet. Uh, the entire story uh, of yep. uh, the, what the film is based on, um, but then again, the Criterion doesn't have the Del Toro commentary, so maybe it's worth doing it both. Well, the, the massive cinema has the PDF of Carmilla, the yeah. source novella on on the disc. So if you you know if you put, pop the disc in your computer, you're going to get it. Okay. I am watching the film now, and I'm seeing the scene where Alan Gray he's having this dream of being in a coffin. Yes. And he's... he. I, I don't think he's able to move uh, from what I can understand, but he's being sort of buried alive. Yeah. And it's uh, it's an incredibly... I mean, I remember seeing the film, uh, what's it called, Buried, I think, uh, with Ryan Reynolds. The Ryan Reynolds, yeah. And it's sort of that fa- same feeling of being incredibly claustrophobic and unable to, like... You're unable to control your own fate. Yeah, I think Dreyer achieves that very, very well, especially because it's not until then that he, he, he turns the camera and makes it much more subjective mm-hmm. and kind of hones in on, on you know, the, the psyche and he, you show that image of him from the coffin and you just see the, you know, them screwing it in from above and th- through the coffin window above. Yeah, I think it's it really does kind of create that sense of claustrophobia mm-hmm. and you have this great pov shot of um from the coffin watching yeah. like the trees go by and yes there's it, it is quite um, he's desperately trying to put us in the mental state of alan gray and he achieves it really i think he achieves it very well yeah mm. um another film another scene that really stands out for me that i can remember is this final scene where the, the doctor is um, again another claustrophobic scene where the doctor is trapped Trust. inside that windmill or yes. the grinder, uh, and he's sort of buried in flour. Yes, 
that's another hugely controversial scene because I think they had to change that. Okay, from a, a, a few times. So another scene that really stands out for me is that that final scene, which is another claustrophobic uh, scene there, where, where a doctor is trapped in that windmill, and or, or grinder of sorts, and flour is then poured onto him by that um, the worker that traps him there. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, again, the use of whiteness as the sort of death signal there. Yeah, it's very significant. But it's interesting reading that article in the book about how, because originally Dreyer wanted uh, the Doctor to sort of, uh, you know, be trapped in quicksand on the marsh, kind of escaping. But then they had to abandon it because no suitable marsh was found and it was too dangerous. So they had to, to, to come up with this new idea and then they passed this building, the factory, which is where they used for the, you know, for the venue. I think it was a, a plaster factory and all the, you know, the workmen came out in sort of white clothes and that's what kind of gave them the idea to, to drop the flower and, and do that. So it's a interesting to think how it, it could have finished had it mm-hmm. not been for that sort of, you know. I think they were out scouting locations actually and taking the train and they rode past this, um, this worker, uh, this uh, mill of workers there, Elder Plaster. Um, I think I seem to remember coming across an article um, describing that kind of the impetus uh, for the whiteness there. Yeah, but it is interesting. I mean, what a different film you would have had if he had decided to go for that more dark quality. For the yeah, film. yeah, it's, it again. It goes back to just kind of Dreyer's, you know, testament to his skill that he, he can do this without. You know the sort of the graphic violence that you'd seen, and the the shadows, and you know that that you used to in, in kind of contemporary horror films. Um, one thing um, that we haven't talked about yet is actually the use of sound in the film. Uh, yes. And the, the use of music, because you're you're a musician yourself. Yes. And one thing that I really noticed in the film is how kind of disjointed the the music is to some of the scenes. You really yeah. have this sort of like happy market place sort of sound in some of the scenes there yeah it's a real contrast to kind of the visuals but mm-hmm. it's music by Wolfgang Zeller who was a German composer and he was a accomplished uh, concert violinist so you've got this string heavy score mm. uh, and it's fair if you listen to it it's fairly complex um, but he's obviously worked closely with Dreyer to develop it and kind of I mean, it, you say it, if you listen to it, it, it does sound kind of discordant with the with the image, but it's obviously dry. Wouldn't have you know let it go if he wasn't happy with it or that's not what he wanted. So it's you know mm. it's again playing with the kind of the the audience's mind and it, it adds to that sort of surreal abstract feel. Yeah, it definitely lends a sort of a dark humor to the film. Yeah, yeah that I don't think yeah. is present if you don't have that sort of uh, music. No, uh, um, which is uh, it's. Another thing that is quite interesting is sort of the use of um, the creaking sounds, the uh, the kind of the atmospheric sound qualities that he creates in post production. Yeah. Everything that creates this sort of um, this sort of surreal uh, universe that we are inhabiting there. And you, again, you're never sure there are these noises off. You know these different creaks and sound you're never sure whether they've actually happened or whether mm-hmm. he's hearing them and it's you know it's all again in his head you're never quite sure yeah i mean the first couple of times i saw it um i remember watching it and taking it very like straightforward um where for example when the 
um, the Lord of the House, he first enters Alan Gray's room. I, I mean, I completely didn't think that that was a dream. I thought that this is a weirdo <laughs> who, like, enters other people's rooms and then yeah. he, he gave him a book. <laughs> but then when you watch here. the film a couple of times, you can sort of you can sort of take on different meanings in the film uh, from these different scenes where you can start to question what is real here and what is imagined, well, which they, is, it really rewards the second viewing and the third yeah. viewing. And then you kind of think, well, you know, he's come to Alan Gray's room, who, this young man who has a, you know, a, a fascination with, with vampires and, and death and that kind of thing. Mm. And you think, well, why has he come to him? How does he know? Is it coincidence? You know, it's, it's again, it's it's that interesting kind of set, how you interpret it. It's, it's mm. yeah. Very, very much up to like the audience and obviously like we've been talking about very different from the contemporary horror films that were coming out. So, I and, mean, and, and different to all Dreyer's work, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is categorised as a horror and, if you if you kind of take that central narrative background uh, mm-hmm. backbone, which is is fairly simple central nav- narrative, mm-hmm. but it kind of lends itself to the horror genre. But then you strip that apart and you look at the the visuals and the kind of metaphysical aspects of the film, it, you know, it, it becomes a much more transcendent and complex film than mm-hmm. you know the sort of the quickie, you know, low budget horrors of the time. The B-movie horrors. Um, um, that was something, I mean, the first time I I watched it, I mean, uh, I'll put it in another way, it, it really grew on me the more I've been watching it, really. Yeah. The um, Just getting uh, a sort of grasp on what's going on and then trying to let that go afterwards yeah. is really <laughs> what made me appreciate the film all the more. But, yeah. Um, one thing... Before we close up, um, you can tell our listeners where they can find you online and how people can get in touch with you. Okay, um, if you want to get in touch with me, you can visit The Art Shelf, www.theartshelf.com and contact us through the site. Uh, I also have my own photography website, which is adamgonnettphotography.com and again, contact me if you want to get in touch. And yeah, look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> Great. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on this one, Adam. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. It. Great. Uh, and listeners, you can contact us on mastersofcinemacast.gmail.com or go to moccast.blogspot.com or on criteriancast.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter and Facebook if you want to catch us there. So uh, thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. You cannot alibi. You can't say later when the pictures are all, I wanted to do this, I wanted to do that. Do what you have to do when you do it. And if it stinks, you take the blame. And if it's successful, if they like it, and especially if it makes money, you take all the praise. With drinks, of course. You should always have somebody give you a drink, which I don't have here. Now, and that's a hint. It's like a hammer. I need a hammer. All these wonderful people around here, nobody has a drink. <laughs>